episode of Parvalon Talks. Today we'll be talking about origins on Amazon. I'm Fania. And I'm Doll. And I'm Thad. I thought let's start it off with just sort of a brief explanation if you're not aware. If you go into the extras on Amazon Prime's Wheel of Time, they have these small short episodes. They're about three minutes long and they're called origins. And what they are are just illustrated stories from the world of the Wheel of Time taken from the source material, sort of give you the background. They're really beautiful, but they're not really animated. They're just sort of illustrations that kind of move. It's like a watercolor painting that's animated, almost. It is. I've never seen an animation style like this, and it's really nice. I feel like I've seen them before in, like, and this is weird, but the movies you see at Civil War battle sites. Oh, yeah, you know what? Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> it sort of reminds me of It that. does kind of feel like that. Mm-hmm. I have to say that I liked it, but I, because it's kind of got this very blurry quality, I kept, like, I got a little bit of eye strain trying to, like, make it sharpen. It's just how I see the world entirely. I mean, that's how I see the world when I take my glasses off, <laughs> but. I feel like it is warranted in mentioning this, that depending on the device that you were watching The Wheel of Time on, for some strange reason... For a good while, this may have been fixed, but you weren't able to access a lot of this X-ray features from the Amazon Prime app. Like if you if you had a smart TV with the Amazon Prime app, for whatever reason, these X-ray extras weren't showing up. But if you were to do the same thing and go into the Android or iPhone app for it, they would show up. Or if you went to the browser, they would show up. I watched it through an Amazon Fire Stick, so all of it showed up. So check on the device you're watching. It may or may not be there. If it's your Amazon Prime account, just go to open it up in a web browser and go and, and check these out if you haven't because there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff more than what we're talking about i was watching it initially on a smart tv and i didn't have any issue like accessing it but i think it was in a different place like on the browser it's under extras or something and on the tv i had to actually go into episodes and like scroll back to find it oh that's interesting yeah it may just be that it's in a different spot, not that it's um, not there at all. I do know that my father watched it through an app on his TV. Like, it wasn't built into the TV. He had a smart TV that you're able to download apps onto. We downloaded it. He watched it. I told him to go watch these, and he couldn't find it. So I went over there and looked for it, and they were not anywhere on this app or this version of the app, which is why I always tell everybody to check a few devices just to be sure that they catch everything. I could not find them at first on my Roku TV, and I watched them on the browser, but I did look, like Finya said, if you bring up the episodes and then you scroll back to the left past episode one, they're like episode zero. It's like a hidden track on a CD. Right. It really is like a hidden track on a CD, and that was like the only way I could access it on my Roku. It was a treasure hunt. I know. Now, like at first it was that as well for me, but I think they have since made an entire extras section for it because that's how i went and watched the extras recently because i was flipping through the timeline on my fire stick you know checking out all of the organizations and myths and places and stuff that's where i found it on the browser which is where i watched it today but initially when i was watching it on my tv it was not actually not even initially i watched both episodes that i was going to be talking about on saturday and i still had to do the like the scroll back there was no kind of extra section yeah it's weird anyway we decided to each take an episode and sort of dive into it 
I thought we'd go in episode order, but that puts me in the first two because I picked the franchise. Oh, did you? <laughs> I did. We, we could just kind of stagger it and just kind of round table. Yeah, I mean, the thing about them is that even though obviously they were released in an order, they're not chronological. Like, you don't have to watch them in order. They don't build on each other to make sense as a story arc. Yeah, probably if you're going to watch any of them first, it would probably be good to watch the Breaking of the World one first, which is episode one. Okay, that's fair. So in episode one, it's the Breaking of the World. You see a shot of what appears to be a brown guy in the Tower Library talking to some novices. She explains what happened in the Breaking of the World. 3,000 years ago, during the Age of Legends, the companions for the male Isodile sealed the Dark One into the prison, but he struck back and they all went mad. And I think some of the things that stood out to me were some of the details didn't seem to be quite right. And maybe that's because they're lost in history. And this is like the perspective of somebody from 3,000 years later. But she says the Dark One briefly healed Lucifer's madness so he could see what the destruction he wrought and how it was going to go on as long as there were male channelers. And like it wasn't the Dark One, it was a Shalmael. And it was specifically to see that he killed all his family. Like I don't even think he noticed the rest of the world around him once he saw his family laying there. I feel like that actually ties in really well with the first couple of books and the first season where they want us to believe that Shamael is the Dark One. I mean, obviously, like, the reader knows, yeah, okay, there's another 14 books left, or however many, but he's not the big bad guy. We also know that they didn't really defeat him. It was a trick. That too. But yeah, you're right, that could tie into that, but I don't know how much of these were tied to the production of the show, and how much, like, outside of it they were. I'm choosing to believe my own headcanon that it's because so much knowledge was lost, and nobody was there, but Ishamayo. Nobody in world would have known why Lucerin pulled the power down on him, unless there were witnesses around that heard him screaming. It's, it's kind of one of those things, you know, someone tells a story who tells, it's a game of telephone to where details change probably throughout time, and it just becomes something else entirely. There is a grain of truth in there, probably, but in actuality, what you're hearing is 90% false. It's almost as if the events fade into memories when myth becomes legend. Hey, look at that. Look at that. Plays right into the themes. I'm also not sure. I'm assuming it's a brown eye Sedai because she's wearing like a brown cape. Doesn't look like a Shalamid. And the others are wearing like white dresses with these like tabards over them. Seems like a brown sister talking to novices about when they take the shawl. They're taking up the job of protecting the world from another breaking. And I thought that was specifically the Red Osmond. Yeah, that sounds about right for that sort of thing. I was also sort of thrown off because it made the Age of Legends look like ancient Greece or Rome. Yeah, it does feel like they took a little bit of uh, creative liberty with some of that. Because we're supposed to be in this kind of futuristic-esque society with magic. And we do get a futuristic view of the Age of Legends in some of the later ones. I'm thinking specifically the White Tower. I think we get a glimpse of it. It could have just been the architecture, because, like, look at DC. That was not built in ancient Rome. I guess it was just sort of, the future is going to look like the past, or the past looks like the future. Time is cyclical. Yeah, I guess so. It's a, it's a nice excuse to, to shuffle the people of the land. Yeah, that was another point that she brought up in the breaking that the men were tossing the land about so much that cultures died and the land looked completely different and everybody had to start over and rebuild everything. 
so much knowledge was lost and then being a brown my personal favorite scene of the whole thing was the image of the tower library you see there's a giant hall with all of these books and she's talking about the knowledge that was lost not just the technology but so much knowledge from before the age of legends was lost because everything was destroyed we only got remnants scraps of knowledge that were left we see several points of that happen in the book series with you know browns are just like yeah i've got this one page out of a book and it's like two passages and we're trying to extrapolate what it means that happens several times it's a great short for kind of introducing you into the world building of the show because you come in and it seems like general medieval fantasy when it's so much more than that you don't really get a full glimpse of what was lost in the breaking in the show until they do that cold open that took place in the age of legends where they did make it look very futuristic which episode was that was that six or seven i think it was seven wasn't it the final episode it probably was i feel like and i could be completely wrong about this but i feel like six is swan seven is Rand's mother Yep, so it was eight. Yeah, because you get that, like, reveal that actually this is a, a like, kind of post-apocalyptic world after all, which comes as a huge surprise for anyone who hasn't read the books. Right, and, and, it, and it kind of tracks for it because, A, you know, in episode seven we learn who the dragon is, so that's a perfect tie-in to, oh, hey, here's the Age of Legends with Luz Theron talking to Tamerlan, whatever her name was. Yeah. And then you see the flying cars. Which I loved that shot because you see in an earlier episode, and I don't remember which one. First episode. Yeah, you see that same scene. It's the opening shot in the first episode. It's so good. It's a callback. I, I loved that callback. Because that is literally like one of the first shots of the first episode. Yeah. Is we get this kind of overhead of what looks like a kind of desolated, overgrown society. And then episode eight cold open happens and you go, oh, that's it right there. Yeah. Yeah. Because even that original opening shot, if you're not paying close attention, you would think it was just ancient ruins. But it's pretty clear that those aren't just like rudimentary buildings. Those were pretty intricate. Well, I would say they're ancient ruins being some 3,000 years old. Well, I meant ancient <laughs> from our time perspective. Technologically advanced, but still ancient. Um, okay, now, now my brain's working. They're both advanced and ancient. Those two aren't contradictory. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just biased because of my perspective in time. Right. Uh, do we want to go with episode two or do we want to skip around? Uh, I mean, I guess we can skip around. Do you want to do one, Finya? Sure. So one of the episodes that I watched in preparation for this was episode four, which is Sidine Sidar Stone. And it's the Amerlin talking to, or at least I'm assuming she's the Amerlin talking to, I'm assuming some novices. And it's kind of like there's a short introduction to the Age of Legends where they talk about how it was the era of true collaboration as female and male channelers worked together. And that leads into an explanation of the two halves of the one power, Sidar being like the female side and Sidine being the male side. And then she gives an explanation that the Dark One tainted Sidine and all male channelers go mad. And it ends with her leading the novices and to some extent the viewers in the flower bud exercise where you imagine the flower bud in, in all its detail. And I liked it because it's kind of, I mean, all of these episodes are really, but I, I like that they're 
Randland 101 for people who either haven't read the books or read them a long time ago and don't remember a lot or you're like me you've read them once but there's so much to keep track of that like <laughs> all of it kind of you know jumbles together but like I'm gonna be honest I can never remember that Sidar is the female side and Sidine is the male side I'm like there's female and male that's that's all I need to know I can't ever remember either but I also can't remember which is my left hand and which is my right so <laughs> I did like that they actually did the whole think of the flower thing mm -hmm. because that was always a big thing for channeling in the book series. That was like, I think the number one thing that I always taught uh, female channelers is imagine a flower budding. Was the one that Moraine teaches to Gwen, which is what made me assume that Gwen was the one that channeled in Bella because Gwen was trying to get her trained before she lashed out and got sick. It's a good, um, it was a red herring. Yeah, good red herring. Throwback to last episode. And also, having read the book so long ago, it's sort of interesting thinking back to the whole male and female and all of the stereotypes that go beyond that and such strict binaries. It's kind of uncomfortable now. I mean, Wheel of Time is very dated in some respects, in some key respects. And, you know, like, that's one of them. I mean, it's... 30 years ago at this point yeah like understandably dated it's one of those things if you have to realize it's a product of its time definitely definitely dated but it'd be interesting to explore and i hope that we do get more of an explanation or an exploration of that i think there are a lot of areas in the books where you could go a little off script and update that and i think that rafe should but it makes sense for something like Origins specifically, where you're getting, and it's not even three minutes. I mean, the, like the entire video is three minutes, but it's really only like a minute and a half because so much of that is credits. It's like a good 40 seconds of it is the credits, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it makes sense that you don't get into any nuance in something that's supposed to be this very short introduction to how channeling works in the world. I feel like we're probably going to get a good kind of delving into that if episode four with Alana and her warders is any indication of what we've seen so far. At this point, with what we've seen in the show, I have a lot of faith that Rafe will do that. I think that he's handled the show quite well thus far and done a good job at updating things that need to be updated. I mean, not that the show is perfect, because it's not, but I think that overall it was a very strong start. Promising. I always give a pass to a first season of any show because it's always, almost always at its worst. And it will get better with time if they take the care to do it. I'm not quite that generous, but <laughs> I did like the first season of Wheel of Time, so. There are definitely shows that I will not watch past the first season. But yeah, I'm going to be more lenient on it. Especially since there's so many changes that have to take place. Not just to update the story, but to make it manageable for a visual media. You can't have... 250 named characters on the TV show. I've been thinking about adaptations of fantasy novels, specifically in relation to Wheel of Time and Lord of the Rings, which also, of course, had a big adaptation out. And I think something that for me really helped with Wheel of Time is that I believe that Rafe is a fan, and I see that exhibited in how he like interacts with fans and how he gives us information. And that makes me more willing to trust him when he does something that I don't 
necessarily understand, whereas I don't feel like that with the Lord of the Rings showrunners. This is a whole other conversation, but like that trust that a showrunner has to build with the audience is really important. I have a whole tangent. I could go on for Rings of Power, but that's a different podcast. Yeah. Should we do a Rings of Power episode? <laughs> Listeners, do you want an off-topic episode? Pertaining back to Wheel of Time with, with the whole adaptation thing, I feel like we could put a, a pin in that for a minute and come back to it after we go through all the Origins episodes, because I do have, you know, something to say on that. Uh, something small. Not bad. Just something that has been kind of at the back of my head for probably the last year about how they're going to handle this inside of the adaptation for the show. But do you have anything else on this uh, episode of Sidar Sighting and the Stone? I think we covered basically everything I had to say about it. What was the stone part? I don't know. Okay, I, I actually watched it this afternoon. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I don't know. I was thinking maybe that was just a reference that someone who is more well-versed in Wheel of Time trivia would catch that I just didn't. The only thing that comes to my mind is the stone of fear that was all that i could think of and that has nothing to do with this episode so unless they're trying to say that the male channelers are stones and the females are flowers or something like just listening to it the men are strong and have to tame it and i'm like god that's so oh no yeah it's like the women have to surrender to it and men seize the power and it's just kind of like like oh oh no oh no, 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 no. <laughs> it's like, for, for men, it's like a nondescript raging torrent that they have to seize and wrestle and gain control of it. And with women, it's just like, imagine the budding flower. Now surrender yourself to it. Let it into you. And it's just like, I don't like this terminology at all. This is one of the times when I have more sympathy for Nynaeve because I would think that was bullshit, too. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's probably partially why she had a block for the longest time. You know, she's so headstrong that she would be the one to see Sidar instead of, you know, succumbing to it, as so many have put it. I believe that. Mm -hmm. Maybe the problem wasn't with Nynaeve. Maybe it was with our interpretations. Maybe she could reach out to Sidar if they just let her. <laughs> <laughs> so of the two that I watched, I took both the Ogier's Longing, which was the final episode that they did, and The Greatest Warder. And I think I'll do The Greatest Warder first because I really liked that one because it is a callback to an actual scene in the book series. So this one is about The Greatest Warder, Jerome. And the story is that he was the greatest Gaideen that ever lived. With the origin story, we open, we're at a Gaideen training ground. You see a lot of younglings kind of practicing, fighting each other, knocking each other out. One of them gets knocked out by one of his sparring partners, and the quartermaster basically is just like, here, get up, come over here. And he says the name, Jerome Gaideen. And the, the youngling is just like, oh yeah, the greatest warder that ever lived. And the story behind him was that he was basically an unbeatable uh, Gaideen. Nobody could beat him. 10,000 victories, something like that, until one day, he came across a farmer with a quarterstaff, and the farmer with the quarterstaff easily disarmed and defeated him. He had gone up against all of these unholy creatures, other soldiers, warriors, so on and so forth, always won. The lesson here being that never underestimate your enemy, because something as simple as a farmer with a quarterstaff could uh, take you down, because you need to understand your enemy and not the weapon. 
And the callback here is this is basically the fight with Matt against uh, Galad and Gawain in uh, The Dragon Reborn. Uh, it happens in the early 20s for the chapters, if I remember right. But yeah, this is basically Gawain and Galad. I think they're bad talking Matt at this point. And he is just like, I'll take you both on at the same time with just my quarterstaff. And he goes on to take them both down without even trying. But they're both very taken aback by it. And this is where we learn the lesson of Jerome Gaidid in the books. There's really not much more to the origin story than that. I thought it was really cool that they basically took that section of the book that we may not see now because they put it into an origin episode happen. So It's a simple scene, but it's... It's simple yet powerful. Powerful, yeah. Because it was uh, Hamar, like, he knew what was going to happen when they both took him on. And once Matt started spinning his quarterstaff around and just kind of floors both of them. Hamar at the end of it basically said what we learn in this origin story that during his lifetime, Jerome fought over 10,000 times in battle and single combat, and he was only defeated once by a farmer with a quarterstaff. It's a good scene for Matt, too. I feel like that's when he starts to be more interesting and be more compelling. Exactly. That's really when he starts coming into his own character, because during that entire fight, too, he's just like, I have no idea what I'm doing, as he is just like, <laughs> just just laying into these two. In retrospect, you really enjoy seeing him beat those two up. Or at least I did. Is this before or after he went in the arches? I don't remember. He's at the tower now because they had just separated him from the dagger. So it is before him going into the arches. He hasn't gotten his memories back. This is all just his luck getting him through the battle. He doesn't have any battle. You know, he doesn't have any past lives general kind of know-how on this. This is basically just a Tavir and pull of his luck getting him through the battle. His luck and skill. Like, he has fought with a quarterstaff before. I feel like there's some element of skill in there. This is another incident of Matt being an unreliable narrator, and he's saying he doesn't know what he's doing, but he does. It's just he lacks the confidence. Well, at the beginning of the battle, he does go like, he, he does his very Matt thing of, it's time to toss the dice, and he you know, steps into the battle. But again, I thought it was a great little episode. I'm a little apprehensive now that now that we have this as an origin episode, we won't get to see the scene. And this is absolutely a scene that I did want to see. I feel like we'll probably still get the scene, or I guess I should say, I hope that we still get the scene, even if we don't get the full explanation of like who Jerome Guidin is, because those are kind of two separate bits right like you can have the scene without the explanation of why matt beating galad and Gawain with the quarterstaff like resonates with the warders yeah you could walk away with it being a whole oh it was a taviran thing and just be done with it there you don't need the quartermaster to be like oh have you heard of jerome guiding i don't even think it has to be a taviran thing because it is easy to underestimate a country boy with his bow staff but that kid's been using that staff since he was a baby yeah and he probably has more mastery of that weapon than those two have had the best trainers because he's been doing it for so long and he's been doing it for not just a status symbol that these two rich boys are yeah just because like that's just the way of life he's just competent because he needs to be able to use the staff to defend himself because he lives in an area where there are wolves and men that might attack he's not herding sheep like with a brand Matt's equally trained in all of that because they live in an area that's not as developed and 
they don't have the protections that Galad and Gawain had in the palace, where they were surrounded by guards from the time they were born. Those two see Matt as a country bumpkin that has no skills, and they see themselves as being something special because they've had the best tutors their whole lives, when in reality, sometimes the best tutor is in life. The life of somebody who has not had, you know, everything handed to them. The life of the farmer with the quarterstaff. Exactly. <laughs> also, I do kind of, I do kind of just want to see uh, all of the uh, Aes Sedai and novices swarm around Galad. <laughs> you know, oh. <laughs> I do declare I have the vapors. Yeah, I see it now. You just see the giggling novices and accepted sitting on the sides. That's where we see the Grinwell girl get sent home. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the other episode that I looked at was the fall of Menethrin, or Menethrin, as they pronounce it. I don't know which one's correct. They say in the show Menethrin. I know, but we've always said Menethrin. Yeah, you've, you've got your own personal way to say it. Everybody does. Well, we won't go into that too much. But. Well, I mean, hey, I won't date it, but soon we will have a book with an audiobook that tells us how to say all these things. By the time this comes out, we will have it already. Yes. Didn't the audiobooks for the actual books switch, not specifically with Menethrin, but like with other pronunciations? Like, didn't they switch pronunciations like in between? Yeah. Yes, yes, they did. Sometimes Michael Kramer would say it one way, and then Kate Reading would say it another, and then you go, I have no idea how to pronounce this correctly. <laughs> so, I don't know if audiobook is the, like, arbiter of correctness. Livingston did tell us that they spent a lot of time going back and forth with pronunciations for this one, so. And I think Kate Reading even sent out a tweet of, all right, finally, th this is it. This is how to pronounce everything. Don't ever ask us again. <laughs> Yes, the first couple books that came out, budget wasn't there for them to go back and forth about pronunciation, and so it just got left to however they pronounced it when they read it. And the way audiobooks are, they're not sitting in the same room reading to each other, so if he said it one way and she said it another, I should have it. I wasn't going back because they didn't hear each other. Anyway, the fall of Menethrin, or Menethrin, or whatever you want to call it. It was a thousand years after the breaking. The war was still raging with the Darkwing's forces, aka the Trolloc Wars. And King Aemon is fighting off the Trollocs and the Dreadlords, who have surrounded Menethrin under the banner of the Red Eagle. They are a very formidable army. They were known as the Sword That Could Not Be Broken, also called the Band of the Red Hand, which wasn't mentioned, but it should have been because it is going to be very important later in the series, and that's going to bug me. Of course, they succumb to the army, and when King Aemon dies, Queen Eldrine, who was a channeler and bonded to him, felt it. She committed suicide by drawing enough power to completely destroy the army of the Trollocs, and it completely destroyed the city, which is now the area we call the Two Rivers, where Matt, Perrin, Rand, and Egwene live. They also left out the significance of that. They didn't tell any of it, which it was told in the series, so I guess we do get that context in the main series itself, but it would have been more interesting to have more background on Eridol and why their betrayal was such a big thing. Uh, they did kind of touch on it, right? You know, when they're riding the horses and Moraine is talking about it. She, she mentioned, she kind of gave a very Spark Notes version of it. Did they mention it when they go into Shadow of Rogoth? That it was Aerodol? I feel like they mentioned that Aaron Hall was supposed to help Menethrin, and then they just kind of sealed themselves off. And then once they opened, you know, they broke open the walls, they were like, there's nobody here. Yeah, 
they do go into that in the show. But there there was more to it, because it wasn't just that they refused to help. That Menethirin, Erdal, and eight other countries, after the breaking, finally came together to settle the land. They signed the Compact of Ten Nations, and they all agreed to come to each other's aid. And when Menethirin put out the call for aid to Erdal, and Erdal refused to come, they broke that pact, which was, at this point, hundreds of years old. So that was a huge thing. But it wasn't just that. The Amerlin at the time, Tetsun, was jealous of Eldrin and her power. And she advised Eredal not to go because she was jealous. And her advisor, Mordeth, was also the advisor for the Eredal. We might see later in the series. Spoilers. Because of this betrayal, Tetsun was stripped of her titles and stilled. And then Eredal sealed itself up and was never seen again. So, like, we miss all of that. Which is sad, because I think there's so much more to the story that you don't even really get in the book series if you don't dig a little deeper. I agree it's a shame that we don't get that, because that is really interesting context. But I think that just given what these little short stories are trying to do, which is, like, be this very brief, basic introduction, like, that's that's the 200-level class. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but they could have, like... There was no mention of Mordith. There's no mention of the pack. We might see it in the TV show. I mean, like the way that we get a little more information about Eridol in the show that then lends itself to knowing some background and context for this episode. Like we might get that later on. Yeah, I would assume when we go back to Shadowlord Off, we're going to get some more information. Yeah. We better, considering. And I'm sure that they also figure that no one is watching origins who hasn't watched the tv show or isn't going to watch the tv show it's true yeah that is true maybe i'm just watching it i want that context now because you need that context later (laughs) (laughs) it won't make sense (laughs) i agree because the whole story of the fall of menethrin i love it so much it is such a sad and tragic story and you know what the animation for the fall of menethrin does it justice it really does it does there's the one point when all you see is a close-up of Eamon's eyes, like his bright green eyes, and oh, it's a little bit of his crown, but like, you can just see the anguish in his eyes because he's trying, he's trying to save. He's also got some arrows in his back. He knows he's on death's door. Yeah, and he knows it's pointless, but he's going to try to save his kingdom and his people and his loved ones, and it's not going to help, but he's not going to stop. Like, There's nothing else of that shot. It doesn't even really move. I think you kind of see like some quiver in the, the eye, but it's very moving and it's really beautiful, which is why I was like, I want to know. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a good one. It's one of the better ones. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's definitely one of the best um, Origins episodes. I just wanted more of it. I wanted it to be an hour, okay? I know it was only three minutes or a minute and a half or whatever, but it really should have been 60. We just need a whole episode. I would not complain if we had a whole episode dedicated to the fall of Menethrin. Right, Amazon, I am proposing a new series. It's going to be set in Menethrin. <laughs> it's going to be about the Trolloc Wars. I mean, I'd watch it. If you can spend $700 million on an episode of Ring of Powers, we can do the fall of Menethrin, the miniseries. The Trolloc Wars. You just call it the Trolloc Wars. <laughs> or the Hundred Years War, whatever it was. Oh, that would be awesome. War of the Shadow. Yeah. And we, they, I'm, HBO got House of Dragons. Why can't we get the War of Shadow? Yeah. 
You got House of Dragons. You got Rings of Power. Why not the Trial of Fours? Just saying, I'll be your showrunner. There's a lot there, like a lot of material. Obviously, like you'd have to make up a lot of stuff, but there's a lot of just like bits where you can just fill in, kind of fill in the blanks. That would be really good. I mean, Rings of Power is already doing that, so we we said we said we're not gonna talk about Rings of Power, so I'm trying not to. But it keeps coming up. But there's more source material for this than there was for Rings of Power. Just saying. At least more source material that they would presumably have access to anyway. <laughs> and a hard pivot. How about that White Tower, Finya? <laughs> yeah, so the White Tower. Um, the White Tower is basically an overview of how the White Tower was created. It's the Amarillan talking about the start of the tower and, and saying like, you know, after the breaking, there were these surviving factions of female Aes Sedai who came together to protect the world, essentially, while the male channelers went mad. She talks a little bit about the process of going through the tower and being raised to the shawl. Like, first you're a novice, then you're an accepted, and then you take the three oaths and you become an Aes Sedai. And then she gives an explanation of the different Aja, and she doesn't actually, like, call them by their color, but... When she describes each Aja, you see an image, like a tapestry, essentially, of the group. So you know who she's talking about. I mean, presumably, if you've read the books, you know who she's talking about anyway. But for viewers who haven't, or people who are a little more uncertain, you can place color with description. So she says, there are warriors standing ready, healers of all things living, keepers of the past, seekers of justice, law-focused diplomats, pursuers of truth and reason and then those dedicated to preventing the wrong and dangerous use of the one power. So the ideals of each Aja. Yeah, the ideals of each Aja. And then she gives a short explanation of the hall, like it's the central council, and it's represented by three sitters from each Aja. And that's essentially where the, the episode ends. It's a great crash course on Aes Sedai, basically. If you aren't sure, that was green, yellow, brown, gray, white. Yeah, so it's... Green, yellow, brown, blue, gray, white, and red, respectively. Which I appreciated because I do always get gray and white confused. Probably because they don't show up in the books as much. But we definitely see more of white than we do of gray in the books. We don't see enough of either for me to remember their characteristics. <laughs> I'm just going to say that. <laughs> That's totally fair. I mean, they have very similar ideals. The books definitely focus more on the more action-oriented Ajas than the more idealistic Ajas. I personally don't see white and gray as so similar. Like, from my perspective, they have very different goals. What a brown thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> I think, no, I think, I think you're right, Doll. I think they do have very different goals, but for someone who's, like, a first-time reader who's being bombarded with all of this information... Yeah, it's a lot. It's very easy to make diplomacy and like reason kind of like mesh in your mind and not be able to figure out which one is which and also gray and white as colors they're just they're kind of similar i mean gray is just dirty white i mean they're actually colors there is uh one thing they do bring up at the end and uh it, it's basically this is why we chose where the white tower is going to be oh. yes in the shadow of dragon mount yes because the dragon reborn is coming and this is our reminder. Yes. 
Oh yeah, that was that was actually in the Unbreaking. One. That's also in the White Tower episode. It was in the White Tower one as well. Yeah. You get a really cool shot of Tarvalon as they like draw out, and you and you can see um, Dragon Mountain in the distance. Or, AKA Kinslayer's Dagger. So I guess if you don't have anything more to add on to the White Tower one, we'll move on, I guess, to the final short, which is An Ogier's Longing. This one was my favorite one of all of them, and this was the last one that they released. So basically, the crux of this one was just, it's all about Loyal, first and foremost. While it doesn't mention Loyal in any fashion, it's all about Loyal. So we have an unnamed Ogier, and he is talking about that it is very rare and unusual that an Ogier decides to leave a steading. Because in the years of the breaking during the exile, you know, Ogier wandered lost in search of their steadings. That's like a big thing about the Ogier. That's why they kind of stick to where they're at and they don't come out and they don't help anyone anymore. It's because during the breaking of the world, they got separated from their steadings because the steadings got shuffled around in the breaking, as we discussed with the first episode of The Origins, and they could not find their steading anymore. So they wandered, kind of like the Tinkers, they just kind of wandered the world looking for their homes. And in doing so, they developed basically a deadly homesickness that if they don't get back to these spaces in a certain amount of time, they will die. So they go on to talk about how there's no better place to be than an Ogier Grove. With its big, tall, great trees, that's one of the defining features that we have of an Ogier Grove, is they've got these, you know, if you want a real-world comparison, think of a California redwood, how big and huge they are. That would be kind of the signaling factor that you are near a steading. And these trees have been around since the Age of Legends, so they harbor a special property as well that no shadow spawn can enter them, and you are unable to channel any of the one power while you are within the special zone. The narrator goes on to talk about how people of the world came to desire Ogier masonry and stuff like that, and in the... Uh, short itself, we get to see a group of Ogier do some tree singing, which was really nice. So they do some tree singing at one of the great trees, and we see, like, they make a little boat for a little child Ogier. But the whole thing of it is, the steading is great, the steading is lovely, there's no better place to be. But in the heart of some Ogier, they want to see the world and see everything outside. Which, you know, kind of leads into the journey that Loyal is having following rand around at this point is he wants to see where this goes right but oh this was a beautiful short i this is this is my favorite one like i won't lie it brings a tear to my eye it's just such a good one like i just because i feel like i have that wanderlust or that wanderlust sometimes and just describing how an ogier is about it like i love my home i love to be here when I'm here, I feel recharged. My social battery goes from zero to 100, no times flat. But if I'm out too long away from home, you know, I start feeling like I need to get back home again. It's very relatable. You're saying the oak here are neurodivergent. Or what? <laughs> neurodivergent. Or just introverts. <laughs> I wouldn't say neurodivergent, maybe, but they, they just they just really like their homes. Um, it raises a good point, though, that that they do say in the short that the Ogier, because of the longing, they're tied to their homes. Which, I have a question I could raise about that. I don't know how spoilerific this is, because we know that the Ogier aren't technically from this world, thanks to the Portal Stones. They came from another dimension. So if they decided to use their Book of 
transformation and leave, does the longing go with them or is it left behind? I don't know, but I'm going to say that I completely missed the fact that they're from another dimension on my first read through. You did? Oh. <laughs> yeah, they are not from Randland. Yeah, I don't think that I got that when I read the books. I don't know if I was reading too fast or if I would just completely missed something, but... It's entirely possible that we just had so many years of speculating like how portal stones work, because they only work because they're not an Aes Sedai creation. The gateways were created in conjunction with Aes Sedai because they were a gift. Are you talking about the ways? Oh, that's the ways. That's correct. I'm, I'm mixing up the ways and the portal stones. The ways were a gift to the Ogier from the male channelers who had basically taken taking, um, kind of sanctuary inside Ogier groves because they couldn't channel while in there but you know because of the nature of how the ways were created you know things happen yeah the taint i was mixing up the portal stones and the ways but the the portal stones were 100 percent ogier and they work by moving through dimensions okay that that i did know or that they work through moving through dimensions i just don't remember that they were ogier related at all my theory that the reason that they have get the longing is because they are not supposed to be in this dimension the longer they're away from the steadings, which are a part of their dimension that is within ours, that's why the steadings are outside of the power and everything, is because it is a slice of their dimension that has been transported into ours, and they're longing to go back there because they're drawn back to their own dimension. So to poke a hole in that, why didn't that happen to the Shanshan Ogier? We don't know. There's something different about them. But they also, if you think about how aggressive the Shanshan Ogier are, way more aggressive is it because they're channeling that longing into aggression and putting the long handle on their axes yeah that's one thing that's never really expanded upon we haven't expanded on it we don't know why i think that might have been something that would have been explored in the outrigger novels but yeah because it's one of those things of they found their static because they had a smaller landmass to search on so during yeah. the breaking they found mm -hmm. their settings way easier than the ogier on you know this side of the pond did so i mean yeah. that's that's a very viable theory that it kind of you know if we're gonna go with the multiple reality i mean we know there's multiple realities we've seen it happen in the books but if they kind of because of the breaking kind of went and just kind of shifted out of place then yeah that would make a lot of sense yeah and that's why our channeling doesn't work in their settings because they're not in this plane well you can't access the one power while in it but we have seen people specifically i won't name characters but we have seen people take wells of power into and still use it so it's usable in there just not accessible yeah because you can't access it because you're no longer right. in that plane of existence but if you bring it in with you you can use it and we know that they know about the evil fiend and Elfian way more than like we know the elders know what they are, who they are, because they don't seem to like or trust them. Didn't they tell them at one point, stay away from the tower, don't go near it? Yeah. Loyal told them never to go anywhere near the Tower of Genji. The only bad things come from that. And nobody listened. Nope. Well, Moraine didn't really have a choice. So yeah, Moraine really didn't have a choice with it, but everybody else did, and they decided to go into it. So. I don't know that Matt really had a choice either. <laughs> no, he was kind of faded into doing it. Yeah. More or less. But um, no, it wasn't the Book of Transformation. It was the Book of Translation, which is, I guess, easy enough to mess up because they're both big words that start with T. Yeah. 
And if you think of translation rather than, like most people think of it as you're translating one word from one language into another, but it doesn't have to specifically be languages. So what this book is doing is you're translating your reality from one to the other. Like we don't know if they would be using that. We just know it will move them between worlds and we don't know what world they would go to if it's another planet or if it's just another reality. Right. But they appeared sometime either before or during Age of Legends and they chose not to do it in the War of the Shadow and they lost touch with their deading. That's why they were considering doing it when the Tarmangan was happening because they didn't want that to happen again. Oh yeah, I mean, wouldn't you? It would be kind of a situation of, I don't know if we're going to survive this so we, should, we might need to just hightail it to the next dimension. Get the heck out of Dodge right now. Yeah. Let the humans deal with their own mess. But they they didn't use it during the breaking of the world, so why is it at Tarman Gaiden? Because they knew they were better. <laughs> Anyways, this was a great episode. Again, three minutes, but I it it gets so much out of it for me because I just I really love the Ogier as a concept and a race. I I think it's sad that we don't get more of the Ogier in any of the books. Yeah, at at this point in the series, it's kind of a they've retreated into their sanctuaries. You'll see some come out sometimes to do some masonry work, but we're past the heyday of the Ogier, basically. In some of the earlier books, we get to go and visit them inside of their settings, specifically. Like when the first time they are like, we're going to take the ways. So they go to a setting and they're like, hey, show us one of the way gates. I still find it interesting that for a race that deals so heavily with trees they're most known for like buildings but i mean not that there's anything inherently like contradictory about that but it just i find interesting well i mean they are because the buildings are still standing and... i know but in real life i wouldn't necessarily correlate being a good gardener with being a good architect well they weren't the same oh gear they all have different trades and like, they aren't really carpenters because they're singing the wood, much like we saw in this video. They aren't carving it. They're singing to the trees. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't associate them with carpentry either. But just, like, given that the race as a whole feels so strongly about trees, I just find it interesting that the race as a whole is also known for building these stone buildings that last thousands and thousands of years. Doesn't that make a great analog for how slow, thoughtful, and everything that the Ogier stands for, that they would have masonry that is standing from the Age of Legends to this day? I guess. It just, I mean, I don't know. There's there's a disconnect in my head. That That's probably just a me problem. I also suspect that it's not that they're taking bricks and laying them, because they're in almost impossible shapes that are impossible to do. I think they're singing with stone as well. So it's, they're manipulating nature through their magic. So it's basically, you know, nature magic or a green witch or whatever. Yeah, we also learn a little bit too that during the breaking of the world that they use their tree singing to help grow crops too. So you could say that they're great agriculturalists as well. Well, that makes... That makes more sense, huh? That makes more sense to me, yeah. <laughs> but I, I like doll, I, li I like your idea that they're using their, like, nature singing not specifically tree singing but like nature singing abilities whenever someone has said like ogier build great buildings in the books i think of like masonry like like more more 
I don't want to say craft work because that implies that their singing skills is not craft work. And I, that's not what I'm trying to say, but like more physical hands-on work than something like tree singing. But I like your interpretation. Because they don't do it anymore. So we don't really get to see. But there is, isn't there a scene where we see them? I guess it was a tree, the tree singing. We... It is, it's mentioned several times throughout the series. Are you talking about masonry work or tree singing? Uh, I was trying to think if there was like a, a, we saw it, but we see one tree singing in the book. We do. And that's when Rand and Loyal have accidentally used the portal stone to switch over to another dimension. And Loyal tree sings a staff out of a tree and he uses it there before kind of discarding it. And he's very sad about having to discard it, but they're running from the Grom. And that's also where they come across Celine for the first time. So that is one front-facing instance of seeing actual tree singing happen in the series. So he's like, he's attached to it. He's basically coaxed that tree into growing a staff for Yeah, because he's very politely asking with song, Hey tree, will you please give me something? And the tree gives him the staff. And he's very sad that he has to discard it to escape from the Grom. I mean, if I could do that to a tree, I'd be sad too. I would be too. And that was a gift. Like, that tree gave that to me. And I'm just going to throw it away. That's rude. Ogier are great. I wish we had got a lot more of them than we did. But like I said earlier, this is we're kind of in a post-heyday. We're in the wind down. The only time you ever see Ogier outside of the steading at this point is if you've got a rogue like Loyal who has just left the steading. Or if a city has paid some Ogier masons to come out and fix a building or something like that but they're not building anymore they've retreated and they're packed away in their um, steadings away from humans they're done with them after the breaking it sort of reminds me of the ants in lord of the rings yeah it's true i can see the relation yeah except they haven't lost their wives they have women <laughs> royal might be running away from his but i mean he gets to get married he, he eventually agrees <laughs> Well, okay. He he agrees to get married. That's more than the Ents ever get. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that about covers it for all of the Origins episodes. Do we have any kind of final thoughts on it? No, I think we've, we've gone everywhere. It's a kind of a great crash course at the, you know, the world-building lore of the series as a whole. Like, if you really want to know more, this is great to kind of kind of whet your appetite on what's coming because we're going to get a lot more of this. I don't know if we're getting more Origins episodes. I assume so. I think I saw something on Twitter that implied that we were, but it was not an official tweet from the like show account. It was someone talking about it, which makes it all speculation. So, I would assume with how much that they have been putting into this, because on top of what we have talked about tonight, you can also look at like, the different organizations in the world. You can look at a full kind of world map of the places we've been with a little bit of backstory on all of it, which is great because some of that stuff is like mentioned once in the actual book series. So it's nice to get a little bit more on some of that stuff. We get different organizations. We get some myths on stuff. You can see kind of production photos from all of the episodes. So you can see things that were originally filmed into the episode but initially cut so the two that come to the top of my head a shot with moraine and lan and loyal with a big map while they're still in tarvalon because they're going to go take the ways and then another one which i know this one kind of chafed a lot of people's thighs about but it was that 
using the way gates you didn't use the leaf we just saw moraine kind of open it but we get some production shots showing fane with the little leaf to open it that we didn't get that in the show so stuff like that it's it's great there's so much behind the scenes stuff and this what we talked about tonight is just kind of a drop in the bucket i mean we do see a leaf in the show like when we get a glimpse of fane coming out don't we see a leaf there in that shot there's production pictures of him like that, but I don't think any of those made it into the episode. I don't think we see him actually holding something, but I... It may be on the gate itself. Yeah, I have a vague recollection of seeing something somewhere in the show, which is so nebulous that it's not useful at all. <laughs> but <laughs> Somewhere. We've only got eight hours to scrounge for that leaf. Yeah, but I thought that, like, if you looked really, really hard, you could find it, which, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe you shouldn't have to look really, really hard, but... They're just getting the book fans something to look for, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I think that about covers it, unless we have anything else that we want to... We did say, or you did say we would put a pin in the discussion of trusting the showrunner. Yes. Okay. So one thing I had been thinking about with the show in particular in a specific character, namely Perrin, is a lot of the time in the book, Perrin is our exposition guy, right? So we get a scene, you know, Perrin's already developed his wolf powers at this point. Well, not in the show. I'm just saying in general, Perrin has developed his wolf powers. So we're in any scene that he is a part of, right? Rand is talking to an Aes Sedai. Egwene is talking to somebody else. It doesn't matter who's talking to who, but Perrin is there. And he is generally always our exposition guy of the conversations going on between these two characters. And you always get that kind of inner monologue of Perrin going, oh, Rand has the smell of apprehension about him while he's talking to the Aes Sedai. So we get the conversation and then we get that kind of exposition of, oh, Rand is actually really kind of uptight about what's going on in the situation right now. And then as he's talking to the Aes Sedai, the Aes Sedai has this very haughty nature, and she is putting on a farce, but she's actually very afraid he can smell the fear on her kind of thing. So I've been really trying to think how this is going to translate as well into the TV show, because it's hard to adapt an exposition character like this. I mean, I have faith that they can do it. I just don't personally have the know-how to see on how to get around doing that. I don't think that Perrin's going to be an exposition character like that. Perrin specifically, who in the books we get so much of his inner monologue, you can't necessarily translate that to a TV show unless you get, unless you decide to do like voiceovers. And I don't think that's the direction they're gonna, they're going to go for. That will not work in this setting. I think we're just not going to get that kind of like internal view of the character because we can't uh, you know in, in a tv show you really can't get much of that but that's not to say that i don't think like i think they will express those things through other methods it's just not gonna be we see parents you know internal thoughts giving us that exposition right do you think this will change his character at all though i think it will i mean i think it's going to change his character a little bit just because it's so much of his character is bound up in in this inner monologue and i think it's going to be for the better because honestly perrin's one of the least interesting like he gets so tied up in his own head that it doesn't make for interesting reading a lot of the time in the early to middle books, absolutely. I personally feel like later in the series, he gets so much better. I mean, I agree that he gets a little bit better. 
and this is coming from someone who hates early series Perrin. Like, I cannot stand him because his character is, I don't know what to do. What do I do? Rand would know what to do. See, I'm a little bit the opposite. I really liked early Perrin, and as the series went on, I liked him less. And we talked about the slog in the previous episode. And for me, the slog was very bound up with Perrin and Perrin's viewpoint. So if we get less of that, I'll be happy. But I mean, this is just one one opinion of what might happen, not what will happen. So <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, it's just something I've been thinking about a lot of how are they going to handle kind of just this? Because his character arc with how it's handled in the books is very different from everybody else. And it purely exists to help the reader. Yeah, and I think that's going to change. And I don't think that's going to translate. And I don't think they're going to try to translate it. I wouldn't say purely. Like, I identify so hard with parent the first time I read it. Because there's a point where your inner dialogue is so much, so overwhelming and so much more than what you can get out to the world that it's really hard. Because you just need a little more time to take it and make it make sense and give it to the world that people often look at you and think you're just slow or dumb. I've never personally had that problem but I understand the getting so caught up with what's going on here that you can't get it out here and often for me it translates into just not talking. I think that's one of the compelling things about Perrin Mm -hmm. right like I, I don't think they should change that because I think the fact that he gets caught up in his head is really relatable I mean that's something that I struggle with too not struggle with because it's not a struggle like I I think more than I say that's fine I think the two issues are separate and I think they can keep that aspect of Perrin while changing the exposition aspect of Perrin yeah like the exposition's not needed because the difference between written word and acting is the acting you bring my whole argument down with like four words (laughs) (laughs) sorry (laughs) but like show don't tell that's fair i just was coming from a place of like how his character was framed in the books and how it's going to translate to different medium entirely like i have faith that rafe and his team are gonna like do a pretty good job at doing this. Like, I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, they're going to screw it up. It's going to be terrible. It's like, I'm I'm confident they'll, they'll do a good job with it. I'm just curious at where they're going to go with it. I also think that Marcus is just, he does a really good job of showing that internal turmoil going on in Karen's head. I just wish they hadn't fridged his wife. It just feels a little icky. I think they could have done something there. I still think that was a bad decision. I think that I understand where they were coming from with that. I, I get it, yeah. I get it. I agree that it was a bad... I mean, it's shorthand, but it's bad shorthand. It's a great way to just kind of, like, give a good push to his character instead of having to spend half the season developing that. We've got that immediate push-off. Absolutely. Like, I get why they did it. It's just a bad look. I think it's unfortunate that the thing that drives him is also so tropey, you know? And like, I, I get why they chose his wife and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but it's unfortunate. Yeah. What if it had been Master Luhan instead? I think that would have been very impactful for everyone who had read the books. I don't think it would have been impactful for people who were just watching the show without context. And that's probably why they went with a wife instead. 
that's probably why they went with the wife instead. But that doesn't mean I like that they fridged his wife. Oh, no. I, I totally agree. <laughs> yeah. I think it would have worked, though. Even if you didn't know who Master Lou Han was, you could have portrayed that. But you you don't have the same... When you're watching something without context, like you don't have the same visceral reaction to a teacher. I mean, you you have a reaction, but it's not it's not as deep as seeing like someone's wife or someone's child or someone's like sibling die. Right, but that's what makes it so icky cuz you're not only are you relying on a trope, you're using a a human as a plot device solely because of their got a reaction out of me because it was that kind of thing of turn I mean, got a reaction out of everybody because fridging the wife is a trope for a reason it's a very visceral shorthand but it relies on those stereotypes that are troubling yeah for sure and again i think it was awful but i think they were going for something specific with it and i think that if you ignore the trope implications which is obviously we're all in agreement that those are bad but if you just ignore that i think that killing the wife or killing killing a partner, killing a, a loved one, killing a, a romantic relationship has more of an impact than killing a teacher. Well, we know it couldn't have been a family member because... We could have just explored the death of his family. I mean, they, they could have just killed a parent. Yeah. And changed something. <laughs> but well, <laughs> they changed other things. Why not this? Well, but, yeah. But I, the only reason it's a trope is because we put so much emphasis on this romantic relationship over other relationships. And exploring the loss of a mentor that acts as a father figure could have been just as impactful as a wife that we'd never met. I think it could have been, but they would have had to, to give the time to explore it. Time they definitely did not have. Yeah. I mean, you would not have had that visceral gut reaction, but that's cheap. You could have developed a richer story over the eight episodes about the relationship with the Master Lu Han if he had been the one killed and what that means and why it impacts his parent. It would have been more meaningful. I agree. Like, I, I absolutely agree with you. That's not the way that they went, which I think is unfortunate, but... <laughs> Alright. <laughs> well, that went off the rails. <laughs> a little bit <laughs> that's why i said it was kind of a tangent but hey it makes for good conversation it does it really does thank you for listening to this episode of tarvalon talks if you have any comments or thoughts or want to yell at us for giving spoilers when we said we would try to keep this as spoiler free as possible you can send us an email at producer tvt at gmail.com there's also a Tarvalon Talks thread in general on the Tarvalon.net forums. Or if you have joined the Tarvalon.net Discord, we also have a channel to talk about the podcast. So come join us and talk about the podcast with us. 